Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour. And guess what? This is going to be a substance-free episode oh, for once. I How unfortunate. What a, what a disgrace uh-huh. to both of us. But this is because I just finished moving. And funny enough, I was at Gareth's house on Tuesday night. And by the time I finished the move yesterday, it was too late to record. So we said, all right, let's just do it this afternoon. So I, I wonder if this is going to make our episode worse or better. It's a good question. We should actually run a poll uh, and then, you know, adjust accordingly. Adjust accordingly. It's like, no, you guys should keep drinking and getting stoned before you record the creativity hour. That's <laughs> the way to do it. You're far, you're far more engaging. <laughs> exactly. Well, one of the topics that we decided to tackle today, uh, especially because it's something that's come up over and over uh, over the last couple of weeks and conversations I've had with podcast guests and especially over the years is <clears throat> the difference between following your curiosity and, and following your passion. Uh, you know, we funny enough, Gareth and I were talking about doing an episode on education, but we realized we didn't have enough to say and didn't have time to really think about, you know, articulating that in any way that would be useful. It would just be a giant rant from two disgruntled children of educators. So um, rather than do that, we decided that curiosity would be a really interesting thing to tackle. So Gareth, as a kid, what were the, the bizarre things that you were curious about? You know, I, I, I was... <sighs> My, my parents recommended to me that I get involved in as many things as possible. So yeah. I was a, in band and choir and theater, you know, so performing and getting in front of crowds of thousands of people when I was a kid. Um, I was always yeah. really curious about, you know, uh, just, you know, being on stage and music and, uh, and not only that, but also academia. I was always really into my studies as well. Uh, how about you? Well, well, you also have this weird math thing that you're curious about, right? That you're talking oh, yeah. about that would like make you worth billions of dollars. Tell, tell me about like, how did that even come out? What is it? First, explain it to our listeners. I remember the first time you told it to me, I was like, yeah, that sounds really weird. This is like your total geek curiosity hobby, right? Like a, at another is, yeah. level geek. 
Oh yeah. Well, you said when I was a kid. I mean, th- this is something I've been com- you know interested in since I was in you know college. But there's this um, there are a series of math problems that have, are unsolved or or were unsolved leading up to the uh, you know change in the millennium. And so, like you know, right before the year 2000, I think mathematicians identified like the top seven problems or something. And there's a million dollar prize associated with each one of them to the mathematician who can solve them. But the, one of them has to do with prime numbers. And basically, when you multiply two prime numbers together, they produce the product, which is you know the the uh, output of two prime numbers being multiplied. That product is only divisible by those two prime numbers. Like if you were to factor it, it doesn't get, it can't factor into anything other than those two primes, right? Because when you factor anything out, you're you're factoring it down to prime numbers. And so the reason that this matters, because right now this is just a bunch of like, why would anybody care? (laughs) The reason this matters and is practical is because uh, banks use it for communicating, you know, with your um, your specific account. So they can say, okay, your computer is assigned this prime number. Our bank is assigned this prime number. And so we will check to make sure that these are the two machines that are communicating by looking at the product, which is uniquely divisible only by those two prime numbers. Right. And so it's a, it's a mm-hmm. code, so to speak, or it's a, it's a, it's a encoding method. Anyway, anybody who solves this problem, yes, you're going to make a million dollars for knowing, you know, for, for, for the millennium problems, because you, you get them, you get a million bucks, but, but it's way more than that, right? Like if, if the wrong person solves this problem, the whole world's banking system could collapse. If it was so somebody nefarious, you know, it could be really bad. Like Vladimir Putin or Kim oh, Jong, totally. like if either of them totally. solve this problem. We're talking like, I, I, I think when this problem gets solved, it's going to be at the same level as like when Einstein was working on the theory of relativity and was just revered as a scientist. And so, you know, from a cultural perspective, that's actually interesting because I don't think the world is in a position right now where we lift up our academics. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're in a very anti-trusting uh, environment right now. So maybe it's the wrong time for me to be working on this problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because the, the thing about curiosity is it just leads you to all these different things that you wouldn't have thought to explore. And I remember when you started the, the YouTube channel and I watched the videos, I was like, man, you're a natural in front of a camera. And then it made sense to me. I was like, you're a theater person. Of course you're a natural in front of the camera. And I remember mm-hmm. even telling my old roommate, Matt, that I was like, Matt, you did theater in high school. I was like, don't fucking write. You're not even a good writer. Um, and you can't do it. I was like, but video comes naturally to you. You're a natural in front of the camera. Do that thing. And amazingly enough, like you'd never think, oh, you know, my theater background is going to help me, you know, build a YouTube right. channel that allows me to build a business that's going to generate seven figures. Like, you know, because right. we get so wrapped up in, in sort of this singular view of what our life is supposed to look like, particularly early on. Right. Um, like I always thought that you know, like now that I, I reflect on it, I, I remember I wrote this status update on Facebook. It's like, stop asking kids what they want to be when they grow up. I was like, that's a ridiculous question to ask somebody who has not even lived a, like who's barely lived a fraction of their life. How could you expect them to know how they want to spend the rest of it? But the funny thing is you get asked that so much as a kid to the point where you are basically being pigeonholed. I remember my dad was having a conversation with one of my uncles, uh, it was, you know, uh, kid, I think the kid was in ninth grade 
And my dad's like, so what is he interested in? Computers, engineering, or does he want to be a doctor or a lawyer? I was like, wait a minute, you've limited this kid's option to four potential futures and he hasn't even left ninth grade yet. And my uncle's like, the only thing he cares about now is girls. I'm like, well, that's all he should care about right now. He's in ninth grade. Right. Uh, <clears throat> I know. So, but as far as what I was curious about, so this is, my curiosity definitely got me into trouble uh, quite mm. a bit. Uh, and the thing that I was most curious about, particularly when I was in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, was fire. I, I and it turns out that this is like a common thing for all, bo- like most boys, like guys yeah, growing yeah. up. Everybody seems to have almost unanimously. I've asked all my friends, uh, "Did you ever have an arson phase?" Oh, definitely. It was short lived, but I remember like just enjoying, you know, striking a match, lighting something, watching it go up. Did you ever? Yeah, uh, was- did you ever play with fireworks and stuff like that too? So I, I, I think my parents were smart enough to recognize that somebody with my imagination would probably blow up like a house. So yeah. they limited the access to those kinds of things. But um, I, I had a whole phase like from like seventh, uh, pretty much all through seventh grade to the point where all of my friends' parents stopped allowing me to come over to their houses because every time I went there, I would burn things. So. Oh, my, like, my face I, wasn't that bad. My gosh. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what it was. Like, I was just fascinated with fire. And I would basically burn anything I could get my hands on. And I remember I had one friend. I went to his house, and we burned the faces off his G.I. Joe guys. His dad found them while he was mowing the lawn. And he's like, yeah, Srini is no longer allowed to spend the night here. And that, yeah. was the end, like, that was the end of that. Another friend uh, I invited over and I had this genius idea that we would line up all those stick matches. Cause you know, the like flip matches are shit. Those are terrible. Like they don't mm-hmm. even catch fire or stay for very long. Well, you can't do anything with those. You can't do anything cool. So I lined up all like hundreds of matches in the sandbox, uh, you know, like in the playground in our apartment complex. And I wanted to see if it would create a domino effect, uh, because I thought that would look really cool. Sure. I don't remember if it actually worked. So we went to the, the grocery store across the street and we bought like, you know, literally hundreds of matches. And my <laughs> sister was in that sandbox the next day in the morning. She's like, you wouldn't believe this. These older kids lined up all these matches inside the sandbox. And then that kid went home and he brought a giant duffel bag for the sleepover. And I was like, dude, I can't hang out of these matches. My parents are going to lose their minds if they see all these matches. I'm like, what do you have like, hun- you know, hundreds of boxes of matches for? I mean, right. they weren't only like hundreds of boxes, but like maybe 10 boxes because they came in big box. And you need of a course, lot for hundreds this, in each like, box, though. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. This was like my, my Jerry, you know, my, you know, potential Jerry Breckheimer phase. Oh, man. Uh, and so. That kid took the matches home and his parents found them and his mom said, you're never allowed to spend the night again at Srinivas's house. That guy is going to grow up to be an arsonist. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> parents, right? Parents. And then finally, yeah. there was the, the, the friend that I was closest to. His parents seemed to have an unusual tolerance for this. But every time I would go over there, I'd be like, can I burn this? Because like, they had a fireplace. <laughs> so, like, I would ask them. Can you imagine, like, if you have a son and he has a friend who comes over is constantly just asking if he can burn things in your house. I mean, I would like, kind of be annoyed by that kid, to be honest with you now. Yeah, but. I mean, I'm sure I was like, I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with this kid? Yeah, like, like is what it- are your parents teaching you? So I, let's see, we burned some EL fudge cookies and then, uh, you know, cause I wanted to recreate the Michael Jackson, you know, catching his hair on fire ah. uh, commercial. So I was like, Oh, EL fudge cookies. Perfect. So we burned the heads off of some EL fudge cookies. And then the final sort of hurrah was like a fruitcake, uh, which we threw in the fireplace because fruitcakes burn really well. And fruitcake is Do shit they? anyways. Like, 
they're full of alcohol and it is by far you know, no offense to anybody listening to this but if you have if you like fruitcake you have terrible taste in dessert dude nobody fruitcake likes fruitcake is shit come on there's no yeah, there's I don't even understand why they make Exactly, which is why it's the perfect thing to throw into a fireplace I'm because curious. it's full of alcohol <laughs> and it burns. Like you just see this like big explosion. Like we did the you know the uh, you know like hairspray thing to see if we could create flamethrowers, and then finally I got caught by the cops one day because uh, there's nothing to do in Bryan, Texas, man. Yeah, I was walking around and me and my friend Clint, were the the friend whose dad wouldn't let me come over after I burned the GI Joe guys. Um, we were walking down the street and I was like. I put all this newspaper on a bunch of uh, twigs and I basically set it on fire. And the cops saw us when we started running, like, what are you guys doing? And I wanted to try to create an Olympic torch. And when they asked us, we're like, well, we're trying to keep warm, (laughs) which is so stupid. (laughs) Well, okay. And then they were like, are you trying to tell me that your pyromaniac stage is somehow, you know, connected to your success with Unmistakable? No, well, kind of, because it, it does dovetail into this whole idea of curiosity. But I think that one of the things that I, I realized, you're particularly between ages 18 and 30, was that, funny enough, our, our school system is designed for standardization, and it drills the curiosity out of people, because at a certain point, you're kind of taught, hey, these are the options in front of you, choose mm-hmm. from them. And or choose nothing else like, you know, a college course catalog is like a fucking fast food menu, man. It's like this is what you have even. And the funny thing is the only difference between high school and college is that there are more options on the menu, whereas in high school, it's like a limited number of options. And then you have about 100. And the funny thing is that you also start to get this sort of perspective where it's like, these are the potential majors. These are the career paths they lead to choose between them. And so your possibilities get narrower and narrower by the day. Because when I look back at college, I realized I never once chose a class based on personal curiosity. I pretty much chose every single class based on how I thought it would help me for my future career. And not a single one of them did. The only time I picked classes based on personal curiosity was when I got to my graduate work. Yeah. So well, that makes a, a perfect segue into a clip from a college professor named Tina Selig at Stanford. Take a listen. There are those students who come in and have their life planned for the next 50 years. <laughs> I can absolutely point to specific students who come to my office with a roadmap and you look at them and you say, where's the room in this for serendipity? Where is the room in here for, for the possibility of stumbling upon something that's really exciting to you that's not on this path? And that's really shakes them because their life so far has been such that they, they really want a roadmap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one extreme. The other extreme is those people who are just, they're afraid that they don't have anything they're passionate about. And they're searching deep inside of themselves for their passions. And they don't realize that their passions actually follow their engagement, not the other way around. Mm. And this is super important. Your experiences lead to your passions, not that your passions lead to your experiences. So you can be doing anything in your life. And if you're paying careful attention, you start realizing there are opportunities for you to make a difference and for you to really have an impact. But you'd never know that until you actually got out there. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to me, that really sums up uh, my career in a nutshell post sort of MBA when I stopped thinking about everything from the standpoint of, okay, is this going to lead to money? Is this going to improve some sort of metric? I mean, honestly, like starting the podcast was really 
nothing more than morbid curiosity. It was just like, oh, okay, this is interesting. I like talking to people. I'm curious about them. And yeah, it's amazing how often you see this sort of pattern where curiosity actually leads to the thing that you're passionate about. Mm. Because, you know, what? because uh, I've been working on this article about why you should follow your curiosity instead of following your passion. And you think about commencement speeches, right? When people get up on you know the podium like Oprah or some billionaire and are like, follow your passion. I was like, well, look, one, that's really easy for you to say that in retrospect. <laughs> Two, you're basically blind to survivorship bias right. um, along with a thousand other cognitive biases that are, you know, like causing you to spot that advice. And not only that, it's just kind of a meaningless platitude that's incredibly vague, particularly if one, you don't know what you're passionate about, or two, you actually think you're you're passionate about something only to discover that you're not. And because I think there are a lot of people who also find themselves in that situation, like they go to law school and they're like, fuck, I hate being a lawyer. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked Ugh. to. Lawyers in particular, for some reason, really seem to hate their jobs. Even though they make a lot of money, they're just like, this job sucks. It's boring and it pays well. Um, yeah. But that's, that, that's the thing, right? Is that you end up um, kind of pigeonholing holding yourself when you're like, oh, I've got to do this one thing. I mean, I, I went to talk to our, you probably have the same high school AP English teacher I did because, uh, you know, we're two years apart, uh, Ellen Faber. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, well, I remember going to, yeah, I, well, based on, on your reaction, I'm guessing you weren't a fan, but whatever. <laughs> uh, I mean, I didn't want to say anything anyways, in case she listens to this, but yeah. Yeah, unlikely. But well, so the thing that I, I, I went to talk to her uh, high, high school AP English class at another school that she was teaching at. This was mm-hmm. right when I got the book deal for Unmistakable. And what struck me was how worried all these people were about what they wanted to do with their entire life. Mm-hmm. Now, like you're 18 years old, you barely lived your life and you hardly know yourself when you're that young. Like I don't know about you, but the things that I gave a shit about when I was 18 are very different than the ones that I care about now. And the things I thought I was going to do are very interesting. I mean, I literally left business school and people would ask me what I do. I said, all I know is that it will have absolutely nothing to do with the Internet. (laughs) I mean, that is funny. Yeah. Well, the thing is that when you... So here's the thing, right? The I think the big sort of takeaway from that clip in particular, and this I've written about extensively, was the idea that passion follows engagement, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem when you sort of blindly pick some career path or some you know thing you think you're passionate about is you don't have any data points to know whether or not you find this thing engaging. And the other thing is you also cut off all these different opportunities for exploration, for Mm -hmm. collecting different data points. You know, like Steve Jobs said, you know, you can only connect the dots looking backwards, but you have to collect them going forward. And the more dots that you collect, the more you're going to have to connect, which opens up more and more possibilities Mm -hmm. in terms of what you could do. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't like, you know, here's the funny thing. I always tell people I, I was never passionate about podcasts. I mean, I don't even listen to podcasts. Right. Um, but I, you know, I built a career out of this because I was curious about it. So I don't know about you. T- tell me, like, you're, you didn't wake up one day and be like, you know what my passion is? Airtable. I want to do YouTube <laughs> videos about building fucking databases that allow people to automate processes. No. No. Like, what What led you down that rabbit hole? It was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was curiosity, right? If I remember correctly, you just read an article and you're like, oh, this sounds interesting. Well, it's funny you bring it up because you talked about the math thing, the whole prime number thing. Do you know what that led yeah. me 
my curiosity in that led me to start using Excel because I was trying to uh, manipulate numbers. And so I had to use some Excel hacks. And this is that was the genesis of me really getting into formula writing within Excel. That then led me to get a job as a financial analyst, which I then got laid off from. And then that led me to uh, read that business article about Airtable as a software, which only came like it was, the only reason I was able to like really grasp it is because at that point I had such an extensive use in Excel. If I had picked up yeah. Airtable without ever having used Excel as as extensively as I had, there's no way I would have seen you know the forest from the trees. And I would yeah. just I would have been overwhelmed and I'd have been like, oh, it's it's a neat software, cool the end. But instead I could actually like build some stuff in it right out of the gate, thanks to that knowledge. Right, right. So well, yeah, it's kind of like a yeah. chain of events. But as you say, you need to have data points to col- to connect the dots in hindsight. Well, not only that, you you know, you also have to figure out if you find this thing engaging. Like that's one thing that I think is so often lost. Like I remember my mom was like, Oh, go to medical school. I'm like, Mom, one, I hate hospitals, two, I get sick all the time. And like an Indian mom, she's like, Don't worry, you'll develop immunity. And I'm like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. But it's amazing. You have like these people going to college and they're pre-med and it's like, have you ever set foot in a hospital? Do you even know what it's like to be right. a doctor day to day? You have no data points and you're about to make, you know, a decision about how you're going to spend the next 10 years of your life. Like it's a very rare person like my sister who knows right from the get go that, okay, you know what? This is absolutely what I want to do without question. Yeah. Um, because I know that changes like in a million years, I would have never thought that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and that's yeah. the, the thing is there are always going to be threads that reveal themselves uh, throughout sort of where you go in terms of following your curiosity. But it's kind of crazy. Like there are people who have built entire careers just by following their curiosity and really crazy, successful, lucrative, like far more successful than you and I career. So Brian Grazer, um, Ron Howard's business partner at Imagine Entertainment, He's written two books about this. And one of the things that happened is he went, I, I believe if I remember correctly, he went to law school and then he got a job, I think working for a lawyer or somewhere in, um, in the entertainment industry. And one of his jobs was to go drop off scripts to people. And the shit that he pulled was crazy. He like basically somehow finagled his way into an office that was reserved for a senior executive by lying to some people. Um, just making things up because he realized that one, you know, he could get away with almost anything. But one of the things he did was he used that opportunity to have what he would call curiosity conversations. So he would just literally set up conversations with all these different people, Hmm. you know, ranging from scientists to actors and artists. And that was a launching point for what has, you know, without question been a wildly successful career as a film producer. I mean, Brian Grazer, you know, and Ron Howard have done Friday night lights, parenthood, I mean, everything those guys touch pretty much turns to gold. They did 24. Like, it's crazy. But that's the thing is that we have this tendency, I think, particularly when you read all these stories about success that, oh, you've got to know what you want to do with your entire life and you've got to you know, follow your passion, whatever. Um, but more like if, if you actually go and look at the people who have both interesting and rewarding careers, the journey is almost never linear. Yeah, right, I mean, right. it always sort of zigs and zags. And I think the biggest issue with our whole way that we educate people is that we're taught to basically, you know, do things in a linear order. And then what happens is you go out into the real world and nothing is linear. Nothing goes as you think it's going to. Like, right. I, I still to this day remember 
going into the office of a, a sales rep at Sun Microsystems, the 25 year old guy, I think he had just had a baby and I was a junior in college. And I remember him telling me, I bet you got your whole life planned out and I'm here to tell you nothing is going to go according to plan. <laughs> boy, was he right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I, but here's the other thing with curiosity, curiosity, like one of the things I realized while I was writing about this this morning is that curiosity actually helps you get detached from outcomes. So that way you stay motivated because you're genuinely curious about something. You're going to care a lot less whether it actually is going to produce some sort of external result because you tend to be motivated by this sort of intrinsic desire to learn and to improve. Um, you know, I mean, point. I think for you, right? Like you, you know, the Airtable thing was literally a one week experiment. You're like, let me just see what happens. I don't think you were like, oh, you know, on day one, this is going to be my, you know, multi-million dollar business. Well, I had no idea. I had no yeah. idea. I mean, gosh, at that time, if, if I had even known that I would have made $10,000 in a month, I would have thought that that was crazy. Like no way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you just I tried mean, something. You, thing you, you tried something because. Yeah. Well, you were curious. You were curious enough about it that you're like, all right, I'm curious. Let me see, you know, what's going to happen. I mean, and even starting this podcast, when Sid Savara was like, oh, you know, you should spin this out into a separate site. An hour later, I was like, all right, let's get started. Let's see what happens, you know. And mm-hmm. this is something really interesting. So Seth Godin, by any account, is successful. You know, <laughs> no matter how you slice it, 17 sure. best-selling books. You know, Alt MBA. Like he's done all sorts of stuff. And the funniest thing or, or the, the, the thing that Seth Godin says to himself every single time he starts something new is this might not work. Hmm. Like, can you like, think about it? Like the, a person who is incredibly successful, their mantra before they start something is not, I'm going to be this stunning success. It's this might not work. Mm-hmm. And, but, but to your point, if you come at it with that kind of an approach, now you're not focused on the outcome and you can just allow yourself to experience the journey of this thing, the transformation, the evolution of whatever it is that you're pursuing. And that has to be driven by curiosity. If not, an, if not outcome driven, then it has to be driven yeah. by some other means. Right. And, and what would drive it better than I just want to see what happens <laughs> because I'm curious. Well, yeah. And not only that, when you, when you're, you know, naturally curious about something, it's just so much easier to maintain your motivation to mm-hmm. continue doing it. Um, because that's the thing, like the, if you're attached to an outcome and you don't get that outcome on the first attempt, which who gets the outcome they want on a first attempt? Almost nobody. nobody. Right? And if you have that attachment to an outcome, then you end up, you know, giving up way too early as opposed to when you're like, all right, I'm curious, let's just see what's happened. I mean, the, the funny thing is people always ask me, like, how do you choose podcast guests? This is something that, you know, public publicists hate because publicists think that they have a formula. They have like a pitch formula. It's like, these are the criteria. I've had publicists ask me like, Shreem, what are your criteria for podcast guests? And I was like, I wish I could tell you. Yeah. And like, if I could give it to you in a formula, then it wouldn't be called the unmistakable creative. <laughs> Like that would be the antithesis of everything we stand for. Right. I mean, like, literally <laughs> every, short... <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, funny enough. Like that's another thing that really is damaging to us. There's this like, real danger of uh, curated content by algorithms mm. because what it does is it 
basically creates this illusion that you're actually in control of what you're consuming, but somebody is actually choosing it for you. It's like all, again, it takes us right back. It's, it's funny. It's like the digital version of the college course catalog, right? It's like, there's so many other things you could read. This is why I actually like to go to bookstores over Amazon because one of the things that going to a bookstore allows me to do is to just follow my curiosity as opposed to what the algorithm is guiding me to do. Um, mm, that's an interesting thought. I mean, you think about it, everything that we see online, especially well, when we're logged in, right, is cultivated to what our interests are. So it makes it both difficult and simple to, it makes it difficult to expand our horizons. It makes it all too mm-hmm. easy to go further down the rabbit hole that Google, Facebook, you know, fill in the blank, knows that we already want to go down. But the truth of the matter is most of us would benefit from outside influence rather than getting narrow and, and, and staying, you know, like laser focused on one thing. Wouldn't it be better if we had, you know, broader horizon? Yeah. yeah. No question. I mean, so this is something that really stayed with me. And I've probably said this a thousand times on the show. When I interviewed Robert Greene after he wrote Mastery, which is one of those like books that anybody who wants to accomplish something extraordinary should read. It's you know, super, it's like a typical Robert Greene book. I mean, 10 years went into writing it. Uh, it is basically a profile of like all these different masters of their class. But this was this nugget that always stayed with me. He said the analogy is biodiversity. He said, the more species that you have in an ecosystem, the richer that ecosystem becomes. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was such a profound metaphor for following your curiosity, because the more, you know, sort of ideas that you're exposed to, the more people that you're exposed to, the more perspectives that you're exposed to, the richer your own thinking starts to become as a byproduct. And you don't get pigeonholed like Tina Seelig was talking about into this idea that you have this sort of one, you know, all encompassing passion mm-hmm. only to discover you wake up one day and you fucking hate your life. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's a great analogy, actually. You know, I'd never would have thought about, you know, a, an environment like, um, I mean, with, with biodiversity as, as, as something that would be analogous, analogous to, uh, to this, but I guess it totally is. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like if you look at sort of people who are, you know, some of our very like highly evolved thinkers, they're very open-minded to perspectives, even perspectives they don't agree with. Right. I mean, that was one thing that really struck me, you know, in my conversation with AJ Jacobs, which we'll, we'll bring a clip back from a little later. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about is a framework for getting from curiosity to passion and how it leads there. And for those of you who are not subscribed to the backstage pass, You'll be able to listen to that and the rest of the episode, so make sure you subscribe. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator 
that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.